0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my
1: co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm in pain. I'm wet and I'm still hysterical.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Did that you, we're going to wake up our listeners there. <laughs> well, someone has to wake them up. It's I the guess morning. so. Yeah. So, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1967. And in this episode, we have reached uh, a film with lots of yelling. This is our producer, David Rosen's pick. Dave, what'd you pick?
1: I picked Mel Brooks's The Producers. I want to be a producer. A song that's not in the movie, but in the show and the remake. <laughs> All right.
0: This is going to be a fun episode. The Producers. Which we could have uh, also included in our first feature episode. This was Mel Brooks's directorial debut Mm. um, after his work mainly in TV and behind the scenes on your show of shows and Get Smart, which I kind of I like had forgotten about that he had created Get Smart. I love Get Smart just as a side. Yeah,
1: and I'm a huge I mean, I haven't seen all of them, but the amount of respect I have for your show of shows that they were going like live. 90 minutes 39 weeks out of the year is just amazing. Yeah, that is yep. take that Saturday night live. Yeah. We do 20 and some one episode and take breaks oh whatever guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh yeah, so Mel Brooks was was uh, I, I guess we could say sort of a, a sensation as a comedy writer and creator in TV and had the chance to break into film and it didn't really work that well uh at the time. This was not a big hit. It kind of struggled. I mean, you can see this movie where they stage a play called Springtime for Hitler might be controversial, might have trouble
1: getting released. I think this is how it had to be, though, because Mel Brooks was so ahead of his time in so many ways that, like, people had to catch up to Mel Brooks. And uh, fun fact, uh, uh, you might have read this, Josh. Um, Originally, Leo Bloom was going to be Peter Sellers, uh, who said he would take the role and then never. Never spoke to Mel Brooks after that, like to (laughs) confirm or be like, hey, when do we shoot? And then this movie wasn't going to be released. And Peter Sellers took out a like full page ad in Variety after seeing it privately and was like, release the producers. This movie's great. So good for you, Peter Sellers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's uh, there's a history of stuff like that. I think about Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which is a movie that didn't get released until I think it was the Los Angeles Film Critics Society did that, a very similar thing, and took out a big ad because they had gotten to see it and said, you know, to the studio release this film.
1: If you've ever seen like interviews with Mel Brooks, he has all these fascinating stories like this about like every celebrity and people who you wouldn't think of, like his, like how Hitchcock loves him, like we talked about in the high anxiety episode. Just like he is like royalty. Yeah, he
0: is. But I think at this time, maybe he wasn't quite there.
1: No, I mean, he was, like you said, he was well-known, a very uh, famous comedy writer and performer with the you know 2,000-year-old man and stuff. But even to get this movie made, like you said, it was so controversial, he, he really had to struggle just to get the financing.
0: Yeah, and then when it did finally come out, uh, I mean, it, it premiered in November 1967, and that was when the studio was like, nope, we're not going to release this, actually, never mind. And it took Peter Sellers and others kind of pressuring them. And it it was eventually released in a wider uh, fashion in March, 1968, but it didn't make a lot of money. It, it eventually grossed $1.6 million on its budget, uh, according to Wikipedia of 941,000. So that's barely more. And it was not all that well received by critics, although it did win weirdly an Oscar for best original screenplay. So it, it had uh, some level of clout and prestige eventually, but I think it was very mixed.
1: And he also won the WGA Award for Best Written American Screenplay. But like you said, Josh, not a hit, right? Mixed reviews. Has a movie ever done so mediocrely at, at the time of its release that's gone on to become such a sensation Decades later,
0: I mean, yeah, I'm sure it has. I'm not. I'm not gonna rattle off a bunch of names right now, but that, one. that certainly happens. I mean, we do a whole series of episodes on cult classics, and that's basically the definition. Name one. Of that. <laughs>
1: that's gotten. That's gotten a remake and a huge bra- that like the I most mean, successful I mean, Broadway we talk show of about all time. Like,
0: like hairspray, which had a similar trajectory, like the John Waters film. Nah, I guess. so yeah. I don't. There know was exactly no,
1: how much there was no hairspray-inspired season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So. You got work to do, buddy. Okay, <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, it, at the time it was not all that well received. Um, some some critics liked it, and some some did not. Um, I would say you know mixed reviews from critics. Definitely, Time Magazine in a uh, unbylined review, they were mostly positive. They said the producers has many things going for it, notably a wild ad lib energy that explodes in a series of sight gags and punchlines. Zero Mostel, a Broadway favorite but long a film disappointment, exuberantly caricatures Merrick not as David but as Goliath, and Gene Wilder beautifully underplays as his weak-kneed henchman. Unfortunately, the film is burdened with the kind of plot that demands resolution, and here Mel Brooks the writer has failed Mel Brooks the director. Springtime for Hitler is supposed to be like Valley of the Dolls, so excessively bad that it's hilarious. Instead, it is just excessive. The Producers ends in a whimper of sentimentality out of keeping with the low jinx that went before. And and a lot of things that I saw complained about the ending, which I I felt like fits with the rest of the movie.
1: works for me, man. You know, what else do you want? Like, there's no resolution. They end up in jail, dude. That's a resolution.
0: Yeah, and I I felt like having looked at some of these reviews before watching this, and I had seen it before but didn't remember all the details, I expected... A much more abrupt unresolved ending and i don't think that it has
1: that i effect. i would agree with that and the other thing is this whole idea of like sentimentality but there are points throughout where you see um the characters kind of bond with each other and you know you see leo bloom start to take risks because of max bialy stock played by zero mustel yes
0: so uh, Renata Adler in the New York Times, this was one of the first reviews that came out. And, and Mel Brooks, I, like when I was looking this up, he mentions this in every interview he's ever given about the producers, it seems like, and how this review came out a- at first and, and really just killed them, even though it is a very mixed review, including positive stuff. So uh, Renata Adler said, the producers is a violently mixed bag. Some of it is shoddy and gross and cruel. The rest is funny in an entirely unexpected way. It has the episodic review quality of so much contemporary comedy, not building laughter, but stringing it together skit after skit, some vile, some boffo. The Producers is less delicate than Lenny Bruce, less funny than Dr. Strangelove, but much funnier than The Loved One or What's New Pussycat. On the whole, The Producers leaves one alternately picking up one's coat to leave and sitting back to laugh.
1: So, I mean, that's the definition of mixed, right? That is a mixed review. It's interesting the movie she chooses to compare it to. But, uh, I mean, it's not an unfair review.
0: Yeah. Um, and I haven't, I mean, I certainly know Lenny Bruce and I've seen Dr. Strangelove. I guess The Loved One and What's New Pussycat probably were popular Big comedies, comedies at, at the time. I'm yeah. not familiar with those.
1: I think What's New Pussycat might have Peter Sellers and Goldie Hawn in it. Could be. I don't know. So, uh, Pauline Kale in the New Yorker was not
0: a fan of this at all. And, and in her typical fashion sort of grabs onto one aspect that I don't really include here, but she hates zero Mostel in like everything. And I, 80% of her review is about how much he sucks, <laughs> but, um, in general, but, uh, I picked out some more, more, uh, overall thoughts from her. Uh, she said. An experienced director working with a script that has so much that is good in it could have toned down what is gross and brought out the wit. Brooks has almost no idea where to put the camera. And since the easiest way to get a powerful effect is with close-ups, he keeps almost everything, including Zero Mostel on top of us. And since he doesn't know how or why or when to move the camera, he can't really utilize the screen as a frame for expressive compositions. He just tries to get some acting going on in it and in this, he's limited by his script. Terrible as this picture is, I enjoyed parts of it because I love satire of the theater. And for satire of the theater, as good as Brooks's gags at their best, one can endure even the rank incompetence and stupidity of most of the producers. Man,
1: yeesh! She doesn't. Someone's uh, a little cloud of darkness over there huh
0: yeah i mean you know she never holds back on what she thinks and, and i don't disagree especially well two things i do think zero mostel is awful
1: and i think I you keep pronouncing him. his name wrong oh is it moment. mostel i'm yeah. sorry
0: yeah I, either way he sucks um, <laughs> and i just kept thinking that i probably would have enjoyed this movie more if mel brooks had cast
1: himself in that role i mean you saw you saw nathan lane in it in the remake oh which is way worse. So, so. uh, you know, and I love, I think Nathan Lane's a great performer, but uh, Zero Mostel is like literally an American theater hall of famer, dude.
0: I Maybe so, but I just found him so annoyingly. I mean, and it's really not just him. Like 90% of this movie is yelling. And- It's a very broad film. It's very, yeah. very broad, but he is the broadest of them all. But I do think, and one of the things that struck me in part maybe, you know, because this is Mel Brooks's first feature and he kind of took it on as a director almost because it was so hard to get made. Like, well, if no one else is going to direct this, I will Right. kind of thing, you know? When we talked about high anxiety in our 1977 season, so that's 10 years later, one of the amazing things about high anxiety is how well-directed it is.
1: I, I mean, you, you know, fair, right? Like I'm not going to say it was poorly directed, but he, even Brooks said like he didn't really know what he was doing as a director a lot of the time and he was learning on the job. But yes, um, if anything, it shows like the baseline of just how far he was able to come from.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just think that this movie is, as as Pauline Kael points out, visually ugly. And aside from the big production number of Springtime for Hitler, which has this sort of Busby Berkeley style to it. Yeah, that's shot very well. That right? is. But that is sh- like, it's such a contrast to everything else that when that came up, I was like, oh, wow, wait, something good is happening.
1: I, I'm going to throw something else in there because yeah. I'm going to disagree with that. Uh, maybe two other things in the sequence where I guess it would be the fun and games bonding with, um, Yali stock and bloom when they are outside of Lincoln center and the fountains go off and you see the exuberance of Gene Wilder and we're in this low angle on him and he's running and the fountains in the background. I thought that was like really, really well shot. I also liked when the two of them were on the carousel.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, if it's not clear, I don't like this film, but.
1: Um, <laughs> Ooh, Pauline Josh Kale over there complaining. <laughs> people laughed. I, I assume, Jason, you'd seen this. So, I uh, more uh, at least two or three times seen the remake, seen the play twice. Wow. And, uh, you know, and the curb season, which is great. So.
0: I had only seen this once. I watched it right before the remake because I was, you know, anticipating reviewing the remake. And I look back at what I said at the time and I didn't like it then. And I still don't like it. Um, it's
1: not my favorite Mel Brooks movie by a long shot. So. Right.
0: Right. Uh, Dave mm-hmm. is your pick. When did you first see this?
2: My parents showed it to me when I was a kid, of,
1: yeah, of course.
0: course.
2: Yeah. And I've seen it a few times since then. I saw the play, um, the curb season that uh, Jason brought up. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not Mel Brooks's best movie. I would agree with both of you on that, but it's... So funny, I think. So you think it held up for you? Yeah, definitely.
1: All right. Uh, And I would say of all the times watching it, this was my least favorite watching it. But that's maybe because I've seen it so much or that, you know, your tastes change or this or that. But like, dude, what if it's your first, you know, your first time out, he's taking a big swing here. Absolutely. He is certainly taking a big risk with with a lot of the aspects of this movie. And I, I would give him credit for that.
0: So uh, do you want to mention anything else about the background of this? You mentioned our alternate casting on Peter Sellers. Anything else there? I
1: mean, you know, another piece of alternate casting, which you might have known, which can, which also goes into this uh, season of awesome movie. year. first Franz Liebkind uh, actor cast to play him was Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman said, oh, please let me out. Uh, I got to go audition for this movie called The Graduate, which obviously Mel Brooks knew about because his wife was starring in it. And Bancroft, and she, he's like, yeah, yeah, you can get out if you get the part, fine, thinking that Dustin Hoffman would never get that part, and he did, and uh, that's how movie history goes sometimes, Josh. It does. Um, I thought one thing, because, you know, you're talking about Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Garden. Uh Originally, the title of this movie was Springtime for Hitler. It changed it to the producer, so we could get, get a release. I found this note interesting. One- person one studio said well we won't release it if you call it springtime for hitler but if you change it to like springtime for mussolini like what that's the that's that's (laughs) right mussolini
0: is like less controversial than hitler i mean you know this was obviously like much less distance between this movie and actual hitler than we have now where people can you know
1: maybe more freely joke about this sort of thing right and partially because mel brooks poked so much fun at him uh, but like, but it's like, I don't see how that's much better going from Hitler to Mussolini.
0: No. And it's less funny because Mussolini doesn't have the instant sort of
1: recognizable yeah. characteristics. Now, Hitler might be the all time worst, but Mussolini's somewhere on the list. Of <laughs> well,
0: right. It. Right. Certainly. Right? So we're going to rank uh, genocidal dictators. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They both make the list. Right. So, uh, Josh, you're talking about reviews. There's a story where a woman gets onto an elevator, recognizes Mel Brooks and said, I have to tell you, Mr. Brooks, that your movie is vulgar. And Brooks smiled at her and said, lady, it rose below vulgarity. <laughs> so I mean, right,
0: obviously, he's very proud of what he's and he should be, you know, it's if you're going to make a movie like this, you shouldn't hold that. You got to go all in. Yeah. And he certainly does. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the producers. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we're talking about our producer, Dave's pick, the producers from a producer. Uh, mm, so, so Dave, Dave what, what do you love about this movie?
2: I just think this movie is hilarious as far as you, you called it broad, Jason. And I mean, it's about as broad as it gets. It's just like you said, it's just yelling. It's funny lines. It's over the top. And it's, it's a lot of things we love about Mel Brooks, maybe a little less refined than some of his like more targeted parody type stuff, but it's just nonstop funny, I think, from beginning to end. And this is my first time watching in a long time. I, I think maybe I watched it uh, before I saw the play, uh, but that would have been the last time, maybe even you know further back than that. I had forgotten a lot of, like, the individual beats or some of the jokes, specific jokes in it, but, uh, yeah, I was laughing the whole time Which, it time. what
1: are some of your favorite things?
2: Oh, man, I, I wrote down a couple lines. I, some of them were just individual lines, specifically. I mean, there's also just the situations as well, but I wrote down one line that I, like, laughed really out loud. Uh, oh, Lord, maketh a, a blight on his land, and the, the landlord goes, oh, don't listen to him, he's crazy. Yeah, that was <laughs> just, funny. Just very jewy things like that you know are are very uh very funny and i some of them really caught me off guard too
1: because it's so quick yeah it is fast and it keeps moving along and josh over here uh is not moving along with this idea at all yeah
2: no i and i I had a feeling going into this that josh wouldn't be too big on this one i mean it's it's you know it's very ridiculous all of it
0: yeah but i mean as as jason was was pointing out i mean this is a movie that has a huge amount of critical respect now yeah you know even if it maybe didn't at the time it's certainly highly highly regarded but yeah i didn't laugh I don't think maybe once or twice <laughs> at most when yeah. I watched this and that was the same as my experience in the past. And I just, I mean, to me, yeah, the broadness and just, it's so much yelling and, and I feel like it's this style of comedy and it's not something that I associate with Mel Brooks because he is, I think, very witty right. in a lot of ways. But the idea that like, if we just say this loud enough, you'll find it funny. And I just found it annoying.
1: All right. Well, okay. I'm going to, take up two points in defense of the film right yeah so the first time i saw this springtime for hitler musical number you know in this movie like i was pretty amazed like one that he was able to get away with it like you know even in the 60s like because it is very ballsy and that is very funny and there are so many funny elements of it like you said the busby berkeley style shooting where you're overhead and they Form like a human Nazi symbol or the women in like the beer garden, you know, specifically German type outfits with like pretzels covering their breasts or beer kegs. I, I thought all that stuff was very funny, you know, and that song is just very funny. You know, the other thing is like, I can't say you're wrong. Like that zero mistel is a very big performer and that was it. But I mean, that's, that's who he was. I think as a performer, I don't, I haven't seen tons of his stuff, But I think that's who he was. And I think there are definitely larger than life producer characters, uh, many of whom have gotten in trouble recently, right? That might uh, act like they kind of take up the, you know, whatever room they in, they, they eat all the space of it.
0: Right. Well, I will say that that springtime for Hitler musical number, as I was saying before, is to me easily the best thing in the movie and the one thing that really impressed me. And so I agree with you on that. Even if I wasn't laughing out loud at it, I was impressed with its cleverness and the way he stages the the dancing and just the, the production of it is really good. And it made me feel like, oh, I kind of almost wish this was there was more of this, that it was about the springtime for Hitler production rather than about these two annoying producer characters. Of course, that probably wouldn't have worked, but that was definitely to me. Well, the I think thing.
1: that I think the play does do that, you know. Because it's expanded and they utilize the the medium of theater in such a way. And it's interesting because, like, I love the play. I think it's the best play I've ever seen. But the movie of the play is dreadful, right? So that doesn't translate at all. So it is interesting how you use the medium and what what it means towards the story
0: right and i never saw the play on stage but i agree with you that i thought you saw
2: it with it. me at the win when it no
0: opened, i so. never did i i only saw the movie version which i
2: agree is dreadful yeah really bad i, I just want to say another thing that i love about the movie though is it's very deranged you know what i mean like it's just from the get-go it's like like what is even happening you know it it's very very horny right because <laughs> see he's
1: sleeping like, with old women right away and right all, yeah right. all of it
2: it's just it's just really weird I and mean, sometimes that could be grating i get it you know yeah. but
1: but it's so goes for it i think the woman who played hold me touch me like basically disowned the thing and she's like oh it just shows you that you can never uh underestimate how low america will go for their entertainment
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i don't i don't feel that way um but yeah i did i found i mean you're right dave it just goes for it at all times and i think i can sort of respect mel brooks's willingness to not hold back at the same time finding it annoying right um and jason to your point about zero mostel like that's who he was as a performer. And it's
1: not for you. You don't like.
0: It, yeah, so. no, you're right. It's and and he was that way. But I just do find that unpleasant. And and a lot of people did feel that way, too. I thought it was one of the interesting things I read uh, going back to in our last episode. We talked about Norman Jewison, who directed In the Heat of the Night and directed the film version of Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And specifically did not want to cast Zero Mostel, who had been a major uh, performer of Tevia, the lead role on stage, and he cast, I forget who, but some
1: someone else in that role because he did not want that Zero Mostel presence in his film. I think, yes, but the other part of that is Mostel had a reputation for always being combative with directors, right? He always yeah. had that reputation, and I think that was the other reason Jewison didn't cast him, whereas Mostel would say, it's a collaborative medium. Shouldn't I be bringing something to it?
0: You right, know? but I think he overpowers so much. Um well, in jo- an unpleasant way. To and me.
1: and Josh, like, look, and we've said it here before, like, I think Gene Wilder is as good a comic actor as there's ever been on film, right? But I don't think this is his best performance either. He does some funny stuff, but like we're talking about the growth of Mel Brooks as a director. I think like this also shows you the line where kind of Gene Wilder is growing from.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I don't have that same reverence for Gene Wilder that you do necessarily, but I think he's talented. And I've really enjoyed him. I mean, I think Young Frankenstein is great to talk about a Mel Brooks movie and and Gene Wilder's performance in that movie is a big part of why it's so great. But to me, in this movie, he's either overshadowed by Zero Mostel's bigness or he's trying too hard to match it and he
1: yells just as much. And it's just like this escalation of yelling. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I referenced one of his big yelling scenes, very famous, but I do think you're right that like, when he's trying to match it, it's not as good as when he plays opposite of it.
0: Yeah. So I don't know. I think to me watching this movie, if you're not into those characters and into their performances, then that's almost all of the movie. I mean, yeah, you have these other side characters who can be funny. I mean, you now, mentioned, did
1: you like any of them?
0: They're okay. I mean, you know, Franz Liebkind is kind of funny. I mean, I don't know if Dustin Hoffman would have been right in that part, but, but Kenneth Mars yeah. does it well as the ridiculous Nazi character. And I kind of liked uh, LSD, the uh, stereotype of yeah. the the hippie who ends up being the lead role in their play. I mean, it's okay. a lot of really broad, basic stereotypes about hippies, but some of it was kind of a Right,
1: and again, it might have been more, um, you know, kind of incisive, let's say, at the time than it is now, right? Because you're Maybe. seeing, like, generations of parodies of it. And that's played by Dick Shawn, who was yeah. a famous stand-up comedian. Josh, of course, you uh, sadly left out the man who played Roger Debris the director. Do you know who that is? Uh, I didn't. I wrote it down, but uh, I can just tell you. Please do. Christopher Hewitt, who we all love and remember as Mr. Belvedere.
0: (laughs) Yes. And oh, okay. Now, see, I was looking up something recently. It's probably not from this, but some other actor that we've talked about recently who was in one of the Mr. Belvedere movies from the 40s. Oh, Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that's another aspect of this movie that really doesn't age well is the the sort of uh mockery of the gay characters
1: i mean it's interesting because like all of that is in there in the in the stage version but it's done with like i would say like kind of like that birdcage style of like we're all in on the joke together as opposed to poking fun of it so it's like if i'm just watching this maybe i agree with you but like seeing how it kind of evolved like it worked you know talking about not aging well what about ula
0: yeah and that that's something that's like she is well uh,
1: played by lee meredith yes
0: um there are essentially no real female characters in this film yeah and yeah she literally just exists not only in the context of the story but in the movie as a way to show off her sexy figure and that yeah that doesn't is you know i think there's a lot worse sexism in a lot of movies from this <laughs> era, but it doesn't come off well.
1: Like we're talking about how it pokes fun of Hitler, which clearly it does. It yeah. also does a good job of lampooning theater and the theater community. And like, you know, when they talk about Roger Debris of being a bad director, he's the only director whose plays close on the first day of rehearsal. Like right. there's some good, clever stuff like that. in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and clearly Mel Brooks is familiar with that world and, you know, can, can poke fun at it affectionately, but it just, it wasn't strong enough. For me, and, and again, I feel like it's just so broad and basic that nothing about this movie really, aside maybe from the, the musical number and the, the, the way that he approaches Hitler, nothing about this movie feels like sophisticated. What
2: about, speaking about the musical itself, um, what about the songs within it? What do you think about those?
0: Yeah, I mean, as Jason said, "Springtime for Hitler" the song is quite yeah. catchy. Yeah, and and that's the main one, really. right? Right.
2: Prisoners of love, and that too.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, at the end when they're putting on a new musical when they're in when they're in prison. So, right. Yeah. Mel Brooks may be underrated as a songwriter. He wrote those songs as well. No,
1: he's not underrated as a songwriter. He's revered as one of the great theatrical and (laughs) film songwriters of all time. Well,
0: but I still think that people don't think of him necessarily. That's not one of the first things they think of. I
1: disagree. I totally disagree, especially because of the success of the producer's Broadway show.
0: But even though, yes, that was a huge success, I think a lot of people may not realize that he wrote the songs in that and not just the sort of comedic source material.
1: I I, Again, I'm just going to disagree with you. But I mean, I clearly like Mel Brooks more than you. And you clearly like Hitler better than all of us. So (laughs) that's the important thing to take
0: away from this episode. So um, no, I mean, and I don't dislike Mel Brooks. I think part of it is that I've liked other stuff of his and I feel like this just doesn't like measure up necessarily.
1: No. And that's fair. Josh, I wanted to read this quote to you. And it's interesting that I chose this quote, not knowing that you were going to like just lambast zero mistel and defend Hitler this whole time. (laughs) Um, But uh, Ilya Kazan has this quote about zero mistel from panic in the streets, the film they did together. And he says, each director has a favorite in his cast. My favorite this time was Zero Mostel. I thought him an extraordinary artist and a delightful companion, one of the funniest, the most original men I'd ever met. I constantly sought his uh, company. So that was kind of interesting to me because you think Kazan, right? You think like uh, Method, and you think like guys who are, you know, like Brando can be loud, but he's oftentimes quiet, and like Mostel is very opposite of that, right? But I think this goes into that collaborative idea of like someone um who likes that give and take
0: right and i don't think i mean we talked about zero mustel's reputation but i don't think mel brooks had a problem working with him no
1: they did they fought a lot oh, from okay. what i understand well never so mind mustel had like an injury um from a car accident and for the most part couldn't work after 5 30 in the afternoon but mel brooks even said like he not Mustell only but brooks himself was difficult on the set he didn't know how to direct at the same right and
0: i think the end result was something that he was happy with you know he was glad to have cast zero mustel in that role and, and
1: and get the performance that he got yeah now josh since you hate zero mustel uh so much which of his three tonys did you want to take away first <laughs>
0: yeah. well and i don't think i was looking and i'm pretty sure the only other zero mustel performance i've ever seen was his voice performance in watership down so maybe he's not terrible in other things but i just found him so
1: unbearable it's funny because you say terrible but he's like iconic right like did you what did you think of him dave
2: i thought he was great i mean this role calls for big you know so it's kind of perfect for it. i don't really know his other work
1: but yeah we maybe need to watch other things that he did and theatrically obviously like i said huge success but yeah i mean i i can see i i know your point josh i'm not disagreeing it is all big all the time and maybe there you know we could use some layers to it but i don't think it's as horrible as you say
0: yeah i mean i don't know if horrible is is quite the word i would want to use but i just don't think it is entertaining yeah it's my main issue and i didn't find it funny and i i I found a lot about it grading um i think that and it's and again it's not just mostel uh i think wilder is is also grading is also and and is someone who i think has done good work elsewhere but i think he's just not doing uh you know he's he's sort of either trying too hard or not hard enough he on got a,
1: didn't he have a supporting actor nod this year in 67 for bonnie and clyde also or am uh, i, I don't wrong know if he got an uh, or maybe he was just in bonnie he and was clyde. in bonnie yeah. and so clyde, was, yeah yeah i don't think he got the uh, supporting actor nod, but it was a big year for him
0: Right. Well, and that was, I think, his screen debut in Bonnie and Clyde. And so he was certainly not a well known star going into this film, as opposed to what Zero Mostel was, or what Peter Sellers would have been, you know, if he had been in this. So yeah, I mean, I just I don't I don't know really what else to say about this. It just didn't amuse me or entertain me really in any way.
1: Well, I'm going to sell 25,000% of your half of the uh, podcast, and we'll see if that brings But that
0: that means the podcast has to fail.
1: It has been for a long time now.
0: Is our podcast going to close after one more performance? Is that what you're saying? No,
1: I think it'll keep going whether people notice it or not. (laughs) Well, we can rate this thing then. Dave, what should we rate it out of? Josh would probably say Nazi symbols, but I don't think that's appropriate. So let's do something a little less- Maybe bombs? five bombs yeah because like, you know, they blow up the they theater do blow up, the, up the theater there yeah, yeah. With, with tnt or, or five cardboard oh. belts that's one of the how about cardboard belts is good okay let's I do like that. that yeah i give it three i think oh. in the past i would have liked it i would have rated higher like i said i didn't connect with it as much as time that could just be the aging of it or knowing it but uh three it's still entertaining and like you know springtime for hitler is uh, a very uh essential piece of film yeah i give it a two two cardboard belts wow mainly just for springtime you should go hang yourself with a cardboard belt well that would
0: not succeed yeah i'll give you a leather one because that means you (laughs) don't want me to die (laughs) i don't want you to die josh dave how would you rate this
2: i'm gonna go with three and a half
0: okay yeah all right have we have we brought you down here
2: Uh, maybe a little bit yeah no i i I like this movie a lot right well i mean and
0: to be fair again Lots of people like this movie a lot. It is critically revered. Roger Ebert now says it's one of the funniest movies of all time or not now because he's dead, but in, you know, as as reassessing it in one of his great
1: movies essays. Maybe Josh just isn't smart enough to enjoy it the first two times. (laughs) I need to see it maybe three or
0: four more times to really appreciate its brilliance. We'll get you
1: there. We'll get you there.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of the producers. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about our producer Dave's pick, The Producers, and the legacy. I feel like I should I should let you, you two talk about this first because uh, the legacy of this movie is its extraordinary sort of resurgence as a stage production and then film version of that stage production. Yeah. And I never saw the stage production live, even though it did play here in Las Vegas for a while, but both of you did.
1: I saw it on Broadway, too, but I didn't see it with the original. My brother saw it with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, who were the stars in the film. I saw it with Stephen Weber and Roger Bart. Roger Bart, who was in the original cast, I think, as Roger Debris. And I remember being like, whoa. Like I had never seen anyone use the medium of theater to execute jokes that well. I, I hope that makes sense. Like I've seen plays that are funny and jokes being told, but actually using the medium of theater to enhance the humor and the overall spectacle. I thought that this was the best thing I'd ever seen on Broadway. And I mean, it won every Tony that there was to win. It was that Susan uh, S- Sontag, right? Was her name. <laughs>
0: Susan Stroman, definitely Su- not Susan Sontag. Su- Susan
1: uh, Sondheim, Steven so- Susan, <laughs> Steven Soderbergh. Susan, Susan, Susan. Susan what's her name susan stroman directed is the it. uh yeah. director and choreographer
0: yes. of the stage production and the director of the film version of the stage and production. she's
1: she's very good uh theatrically i did not like the the film at all but still maybe better than susan susan would have done
0: so <laughs> and uh it won 12 tonys in uh in its year that's it, like everything yeah it yeah. Pre- premiered in 2001 so, Dave, did you see it here in Vegas? No,
2: I saw it on Broadway. Also, I saw the oh. Stephen Weber version.
1: Ooh, were know. we there at the same time? Could I have know. been. Yeah, I did. I did see it here in Vegas, which is weird that you didn't see it with me. I don't understand. Yeah, how it happened. Uh, did you see? Who did you see it with in Vegas? Who was in the production? I don't remember, but it was the opening. It must was Roger Bart again or something. Or I don't know.
0: I know David Hasselhoff was in it as Roger Debris, and then later uh, Tony Danza was the big
1: star in it. Who I don't know if he played. Ooh <laughs> <laughs> knew we got uh, to get an impression in there somewhere um i saw with whoever the opening cast yeah was. well that
0: wouldn't have been tony danza um but hasselhoff maybe wait so
1: think. who did he who did tony danza play Yeah, one of the lead roles i forget oh, which one. oh uh, yeah. yeah i i could yeah okay he's a bialy stock yeah
0: boy. maybe he's a bad bialy yeah. stock and and but the original cast uh, I'm not sure it wasn't anybody, uh, no big names in the lead roles. It was Hasselhoff as debris. That was I, kind of the big,
1: maybe one. that's, but I don't remember seeing Hasselhoff, but I do remember seeing it unless, uh, you know, maybe I've had too much LSD, like LSD <laughs> himself. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, I never got to, I mean, I did at that time. Uh, I played here in 2007 and 2008 at the Paris Um, And certainly at that time, I was getting a chance to go to openings and things like that, but I didn't, for whatever reason, get to go to this one.
1: Maybe they knew that you liked Hitler. Maybe that was, I was deliberately left off. Your pro-Hitler stance has once again uh, taken you out of the uh, cultural lexicon. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough thing.
0: Um, (laughs) But I did see the movie version from two thousand. Right, we all, we all hate
1: that. It's so bad. It's so bad. We agree. We all agree. We all agree. (laughs) However... The Curb Your Enthusiasm season is genius. So good. Yeah. I haven't seen that, but I uh, don't like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, well, why would you like something
2: that everyone reveres as genius and fun? Yeah, no. I could see not liking the producers, but not liking Curb, that's that's tough, Josh.
1: Oh, <laughs> what do they have in common? Jews behind them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a no that's a good point
0: um so so is the 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 plot of that season is that larry david is going to star in a production of the producers is that it
1: yeah and i mean i don't want to ruin it because it's such a genius ending but uh well it's a great
0: season so, and i could see did larry david ever actually star in a production of the production i don't producers? know if he did I could see that
1: but it's very funny of all you know all the people who First, it's Ben Stiller or David Schwimmer, and he he finds ways of, like, alienating all of them because he's Larry David and everything.
0: Right, right. Yeah, of course, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, the the main stars of the original stage version and then of the film version of that, along with Uma Thurman as Ula Mm -hmm. and Will Ferrell. Uma! thank you. <laughs> yeah. Fran as Franz Liebkin. Franz Liebkin. Yeah. I think I might've, uh, listed this as the worst movie of 2005.
1: I, I mean, yeah, we, we let's go on to something more productive, Josh. All right. Um, we might've asked this before. Do you have a favorite, uh, Mel Brooks movie?
0: Um, well, I would say, I think we probably did talk about this when we talked about high anxiety and, um, I would probably say young Frankenstein, which I had seen the most recently and, was kind of wary of whether I would still like it. And I think that movie is, is brilliant and is so clever. And, and like High Anxiety, is so well-directed and is such an effective recreation of a very specific style that Bill yeah. Brooks does uh, really well.
1: And I, I would agree with you, but I think Blazing Saddles, which might be the other pick that one would say here, is also a very effective uh, uh, satire spoof uh, and, sh- and um, shooting style of the Western
0: yeah, I haven't seen that in a while, but I actually, I saw Blazing Saddles at like a, a revival showing in a theater and I remember really not liking it, but that was a long really? time ago. Yeah.
1: You didn't sing, Blazing, uh, Blazing Saddles. No, I don't sing. For either.
2: the listener at home, I just want you to know that Jason maintained eye contact
1: the whole time. It was, <laughs> it was like- an intense moment. Say, what's your favorite, uh about Brooks?
2: I haven't rewatched them in way too long to like, to really say for sure. But growing up, Spaceballs was my favorite movie, probably. So yeah. I kind of have to go with
1: that. And I watched Spaceballs not too long ago. And I'm, I know people love it, especially from our generation. Yeah. Not, not my favorite. So yeah. I gotta rewatch them all one of these days. Now, do you have a favorite Gene Wilder movie, Josh? Is it Willy Wonka?
0: I mean, maybe, but that's another thing that I haven't seen in a long time. And I feel like, though, with that movie, that even if the movie as a whole wouldn't hold up his performance as Willy Wonka. Amazing. And and one of the things about him that I think Willy Wonka and Young Frankenstein have in common is that, you know, he's funny, but he's creepy. And part of the appeal of both of those characters and those performances is that he
1: is really creepy. He never plays the joke, right? I mean, which you could say in this movie, he does play the joke, which might take away from it but he always plays the scene and not the joke Willy Wonka does hold up I've watched it not too long ago it's very good and uh any candy maker who wants to uh make a child fat and eat him is okay in my in my book <laughs> but um no I, I do think like you know and we've talked about like him and Richard Pryor teaming up like just as good as there is as a comic actor never won a big award other than uh, uh that I found other than outstanding uh guest performer uh comedic roll emmy award winner for will and grace yeah such a random thing to have gotten that award for yeah so have
0: either of you seen the next movie that mel brooks made after this which is the 12 i chairs? have
1: seen the 12 yeah. Chairs. is that any good um it's not my favorite it's broad again and it's, it feels like a lot of woody like early woody allen style technique going in there i don't think he found his footing was that the last one he did until blazing saddles or did he do yeah, any in between. I think, no,
0: because he was sporadically working that 12 chairs is 1970. Yeah, and then I believe Blazing
1: Saddles so, and Young Frankenstein
0: are in the same
1: year. In no way, really? I think they may be. Yeah, Dave, look that up. That's crazy, girl. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: Zero Mostel, as we said, we hadn't really seen any of his other work, but he did, you know, he continued to work on stage and in films kind of more minor things. I think maybe his reputation for being sort of difficult to work with made it tougher for him to get bigger roles as his career he was went also
1: on. kind of blacklisted back in the day. That's a whole nother story. Dave, did you want to chime in real fast?
2: Oh yeah, it was 74 for both of those. That's what a year!
1: Yeah, wow. that is. So, you know, he really went from these
0: kind of uh, early struggles to, to find a style to, locking in on whatever and maybe it was doing a parody you know those first two films yeah. are not parodies and when he hones in on that then he
1: just finds his niche yeah
0: but did uh jason did you ever or dave did you guys watch the electric company uh growing up
1: no because you're gonna mention how they were both Mustel and wilder reteamed to do the cartoons together right
0: yeah, Zero Mostel, I think, was in every episode of The Electric Company with the narration and stuff. But I didn't watch that as a kid either. They also were I in did. the film,
1: I think, also from 74, Rhinoceros, based on the Ionesco play, which, of course, you love. I did read that play in high school.
0: <laughs> I think I liked it. I never saw the film. I think there's multiple film versions of that, but I've never
2: seen it. How's your podcast about that going?
0: My, my Rhinoceros podcast? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's on episode <laughs> 25. <laughs> Uh, uh anything else on the legacy here you want to talk about jason
1: um yeah josh uh the i found some fun facts for you Ooh, fun facts i know you like fun facts. I I, you know even though you hate fun you love fun facts josh. i
0: hate fun but love facts yes
1: <laughs> it's a it's a real dichotomy yeah you know, going on so um in sweden this movie was called springtime for hitler and every other movie but two they released as springtime for is, is a Mel Brooks movie. So, The Twelve Chairs was springtime for mother in law, uh, Blazing Saddles, springtime for Sheriff, and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, High Anxiety, Springtime for the Lunatics, and uh, Life Stinks, Springtime for the Slum. That is weird. That's I mean, a fun that fact, doesn't Josh. That really makes sense. Really yeah. Was
0: Spaceballs like springtime for outer space or something? Springtime for
1: space, I think. Oh, yeah. wow. Weird. So, okay. I thought you'd want that fun fact, Josh. I love it. I love you it. Love, you love the fun. They love the facts. Uh, Dick Sean, very successful stand-up comedian, the second greatest entertainer in the whole wide world. He used to do this thing where the audience would come in and they'd see like a whole brick uh, enclosure on stage and he would bust out of it like after they were all sitting down. And so he was doing all this kind of wild, like playing with the form stuff. And then he had a heart attack on stage and the audience was like, oh, that's part of his act but it wasn't. And then he died.
0: Wow. That is a crazy story.
1: Yeah. Not as fun.
0: I guess as a stand-up comic though, that's quite a way to go though. Right. Not as fun though, Josh. No, no, not fun for him.
1: But I I mean, look, the only other thing I want to say is that um, Brooks, Mel Brooks, you know, has said time and again, like, obviously we know what a horrible human being Hitler was. And if he just said like, Oh, Hitler, you're bad. Like he didn't think he would ever get his point across. So he always thought that the best way was to lampoon him as much as possible, and no one has ever done a better job of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess we could talk about uh, Jojo Rabbit, the fairly recent Taika Waititi And I didn't movie. think that
1: one was as effective. No, but I mean, I think
0: the the making fun of Hitler and being able to show him in a comedic light, you know, that certainly goes back to the producers and, you know... History
1: of the world he does it in. Yeah. You know. I think you even used it as a puzzle piece on our episode, Jason. I don't remember anything, but okay. That sounds, <laughs> sounds like I did good guys. You All did. All right, Hey, Josh, I did have one more fun fact about that. You know, the part of the song where Mel Brooks has his voice in there. Yeah. Then he right. says, uh, be a smarty. Yeah. Join the don't Nazi be party. stupid. Be a smarty. Go and join the Nazi party. Right. Uh, that's voiced over. And in every performance of Broadway, they use the original sound from Mel Brooks and in the remake of the movie. So that's kind of a nice nod. Yeah, that is.
0: So that is The Producers, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year.
1: Check us out on social media. You can check us out on social media. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. AwesomeMoviePod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. And uh, go for Jason.com. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Just figured I'd sing because the website's not good.
0: You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and you can listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast Piecing It
2: Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out our Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces.
1: And it's come and join the Nazi party, not go and join the Nazi party. Very important stuff. Join the Nazi
2: party or the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group.
1: Yeah, do you want to really like make an equivalency
0: there? (laughs) I don't know.
1: Josh is a member of both. That's true. Okay. (laughs)
0: Let's say, what is in our next episode? jason
1: josh josh i'm singing again for no reason it's our cult classic we're going to another major filmmaker although a b-movie filmmaker it's roger corman 1967 the trip man so tune in
0: next time for the trip and thanks for listening to awesome movie Year. thank you
2: for listening to awesome movie Year make sure to follow awesome movie year on Facebook at awesome movie pod on Twitter and at awesome movie year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple podcasts.
0: An all points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.